0: I want to begin this morning on a, on a different note by challenging children who are 10 years and younger. If you are a children, and you're 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, or anything less than that, would you raise your hand? You're, are you paying attention? But do this, keep your hands raised, stand up so I can see who all the childrens are. There's one. I see one. I see that hand. I see that We got a lot of chill. I see the ball twins in the back. Raise both, all those hands. All four hands. There we go. Good. All right. Good job, Logan. Are you guys ready for a challenge? You can sit down. Here's the challenge. I want you to count today during the sermon how many times I say, Providence. Every time I say the word providence, I want you to make a little check mark. And then after the sermon, would you come tell me how many times I said providence? Does that sound good? You know what that means? It means you're sitting in these brand new, comfortable chairs. I'm kind of worried about Mr. Christensen. He kind of alluded to the fact he might fall asleep during the sermon. So that means none of you will fall asleep. How many of you are in? Yell out, I'm in. <laughs> this must be a Baptist church. One more time. How many of you are in? Ah, oh, I like it. I like it. That's great. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, and turn to the book of Isaiah. Once again, the book of Isaiah. And I want to have you turn to Isaiah chapter 46. Is the same passage that we began to unpack last week. Our strategy this morning is to complete the study that we uh, began last week, and the title of the message today, children, is Discovering the Providence of God, part two. Last week, we learned that the doctrine of providence means to see beforehand. The word providence if you remember is a compound word. It's it's two words smashed together. It's the word pro, that's the prefix, and then the word video to to see beforehand. That is the doctrine of providence. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise and powerful preserving And governing of all his creatures and all their actions. Last week, we took a careful look at this doctrine, the doctrine of providence, and we learned together that no building, at least no good building, is complete without a solid foundation. And so we took time, we labored last week to to uncover the importance of the the foundation of providence. I want to give you a brief review, especially for those of you who weren't with us last week, and I want to review that sermon. We learned that the foundation of providence is undergirded by four commandments, and we see those commandments in this passage in Isaiah 46, 8 to 10. Commandment number one remember who God is. And I labored this point last week because I think many Christians have forgotten this important imperative, this important command. We must remember who God is. This passage teaches us this, that God is the only God. Amen? All the other little G-O-D-S this is, this is totally unpopular to say and this is being broadcast all over the world and so I'm, I'm prepared to say this. All the other gods are shams. All the other gods are imposters. All the other people who, who, have, who have stood before the world stage and made a claim to divinity are liars. There's only one God, my friends. His name is Yahweh. God is the only God. Isaiah 43, verse 11. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. So we must remember who God is. Secondly, we must resolve to stand firm. To stand firm, we learned, means to be courageous, It means to be courageous. It means to to face danger head-on without fear and without flinching. Some of you know that it's been many years now. I'm so glad this is in the rearview mirror. But we went through a very, very difficult season in the life of our church. That is putting it mildly. I have had people come to me and say, Oh, Pastor, you and your wife and your family, you're so you're so faithful and courageous to, to, to stick it out here at Christ Fellowship. I don't know if I've ever said this publicly. Uh, God is the one who emboldened us. God is the one who gave us the courage, but I'm here to tell you that I prayed a thousand times for God to take us someplace else. I'm probably not supposed to say that. But I'm here to tell you that were it not for God enabling our feet and, and giving strength to our hands and, and giving me lips that would proclaim the truth of God's word in a bold and faithful way, I never could have done it. I wanted to tuck tail and run. But God tells us this, we must stand firm. During those days, I met with a, a friend of mine, an elder at another church, the church up in Custer, Sunrise Baptist. And he's a, he's a dear brother and, and such a, a faithful friend of mine. And we met up at the woods in uh, Linden. And I took about an hour to share with him what was going on at Christ Fellowship. And he, he, he I'll never forget it, my, my friend and my brother sat patiently and didn't say one word. And as I came to the conclusion of the story, and I was just worn out, I was ready to go home, I'll never forget what he said to me. With tears in his eyes, he said, there's only one thing I wanna say to you right now, Dave. He said, stand firm, stand firm. That's what the word of God is telling us to do time and time again we are instructed in Scripture to to be courageous, to, to stand firm for the glory of God. There's a third commandment that we looked at last week, and that is we must recall the uniqueness of God. And this passage just bleeds that imperative. God is a unique God. He is a God who the Scripture proclaims as holy, holy, holy. And then finally, we learn that we must remember God's track record, that He is a faithful God, that He is an awesome God, that He is a God of wisdom, that He is always there for His people, that He has a great desire and passion to work on your behalf. Isn't that an amazing reality? That God loves to work on behalf of His people. And so the foundation of providence is undergirded by these four important commandments. But we also learned that the foundation of providence is undergirded by the character of God. Here's what we see in this passage that we will turn to in just a moment and, and read together I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. And so this is the the foundation of God's providence. Now today, I want to have you come with me as we unpack the second major heading. And we've entitled that The Framework of God's Providence. And it is vitally important that we take time to think carefully through the framework of God's providence, especially during these crazy, wacky, goofy times that we find ourselves living in. Have you ever, this is what I do, some days are painful, some days are frustrating, some days are are just bizarre. I wake up this morning and I was like, oh my word, it's like, it's still dark outside. And it should be light outside. I was sharing with a friend before the service that one of the first things I saw that came up on my phone was the air quality index is horrible Don't go outside. Danger, warning, don't exercise. Well, those of you that know me well know that I have a a little tradition. Every morning, every morning, I work out outside. And so I went against conventional wisdom as a asthma patient. Now you're thinking, our pastor's stupid. He's an idiot. (laughs) I'm listening to an idiot. I had a great workout. I listened to a great sermon by Stephen Lawson and I'm ready to roll, I'm ready, can you say I'm ready to rock and roll in a Baptist church? I just said it, it's time to rock and roll. For months we have lived through what I'm calling now, I think this is a little bit more accurate than what we've been told, a global health crisis. We have lived through this health crisis that has literally crippled our economy in America and many countries around the globe and has left countless lives in desperate straits. We find ourselves in the midst of cultural strife. Never in my life have I witnessed the amount of violence in the streets all around American cities. There is a cynicism towards government that has, has risen to a fevered pitch, not only from liberals, but also from conservatives. And there is a a profound feeling of hopelessness in the air. My wife and I were we're at one of the malls, an outdoor mall in Seattle yesterday. And I remember just thinking, it's like you can can almost smell the hopelessness, right? Well, I wrote this sermon about 10 days ago. And I put that line in the sermon that there is a, a profound sense of hopelessness in the air. Now I need to add to that line. There is profound smoke in the air. It just, it, it's getting crazy, isn't it? One of my dear friends who lives down in the Portland area posted a video on his Facebook page just a few days ago. and the, the, I'm colorblind, and I could even tell the sky was orange. That's bad when a colorblind person can tell the sky is orange. And he ended up, he and his wife had to evacuate because of the flames that were surrounding Their neighborhood. It is in moments like these that we as the people of God need to turn our attention more than ever to the doctrine of God's providence. So I want to invite you to stand to your feet as we read this passage once again together. Isaiah chapter 46 verses 8 through 10. May I remind you that this is God's holy, infallible, authoritative, inerrant word. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm excited to continue to learn from this passage and to watch the doctrine of providence unfold. As we learned last week, God, I'm convinced and convicted that we have totally de-emphasized and forgotten this doctrine in churches all over the world. And so, Lord, we want to raise our awareness about the doctrine of your providence. We want to see what the word of God says about it. And Lord, I pray that every person here today would be comforted by this very important doctrine, the doctrine of God's providence. Strengthen us now as we have eyes to see the truth in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now the framework of God's providence I want to suggest today has two very important subheadings, two important areas. I want to give you those areas or or subheadings in advance, and then I'll take time to walk through them carefully. The first subheading is what we're going to label the components of providence. This is the nuts and the bolts of providence. If, If you were to go home today and ask your children, Now, how many times did Pastor Dave say the word providence, and your six-year-old says, man, he said it 43 times, right? That would be pretty exciting. But then the next question, and this is a challenge I want to give to moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas, to ask your children, what what were the components of providence? And it would be encouraging to me if, if every child, not to mention every adult, could Today, unpack the three critical components of God's providence. Then we'll turn our attention to the application portion of the sermon. I'm calling this the comfort of God's providence. And this isn't that exactly what God does for us? He, he unpacks a doctrine and then he shows us the practical import of that doctrine. I want to suggest today that the doctrine of God's providence is not only of immense importance, it is filled with comfort for the people of God, especially as we find ourselves going, walking through this crazy season. So let's begin with the components of God's providence. This is what I like to call the theological portion of the sermon, and you know I love theology, and we want to see how this unfolds in the Word of God Beginning in verse 10, that says, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet come. Here's the first all-important component of God's providence. It's what I like to refer to as divine government. Now, I know those two words right about this time in American history don't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Divine government, right? It's like military intelligence. Are you with me? No one, how about this one? Jumbo shrimp. You, are you with me now? How about this one? Baptist theologian. OK. It's a tough crowd. Divine government. That is to say, God, mark this well, God governs not some things, God governs all things. God says this, verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will. You catch that? I will, not might, I will accomplish my purpose. Focus in carefully at verse 10 on that word declaring. The Hebrew word means simply this, to, to state emphatically and authoritatively. To state emphatically and authoritatively. Now, we came face to face with the identity of God last week in verse 8, and we were reminded that, that our God is first and foremost the creator. We learned last week that children are, are, are told almost routinely in the public school system that God didn't create things, rather it happened by, by chance, It happened by chance and nothing could be further from the truth. God is the creator. We also learn that he is the redeemer and as I said a moment ago, he loves to act on behalf of his people. We saw in verse nine how God's character was unveiled. I am God, there is none other. I am God, there is none like me. And now we come to verse 10 and we find God making a declaration. Now, whenever God makes a declaration, we as the creatures should do what? We should pay attention. Do you know there was a day, and this is, this is not a political statement in any way, shape, or form. There was a day in American history when Americans would hear that the president was about to address the nation on the radio. Do you know what thousands upon thousands of Americans would do? They would turn on the radio. And then with the import of television, when Americans were told early on that the president would address the nation, what would Americans do? I remember doing this as a child. I remember hearing that that President Carter would address the nation. I remember hearing that President Ford would address the nation. And those were days that I wasn't even interested in politics. I first started getting interested in politics when Ronald Reagan became the president. And every time I heard that President Reagan was going to address the nation as a junior high school student, man, boom, I'm to the TV. I want to hear what President Reagan has to say. Do you know it's not like that anymore? It doesn't matter if it's President Obama or President Trump, but we hear that the president is about to address the nation and many if not most Americans, are rather blasé about hearing that the president is about, is about to address the nation. We can't have that mindset with the living God. When we hear that God is making a declaration as the creatures, what do we do? We turn on the television. We turn on the radio. We log onto the internet. I'm speaking metaphorically, right? We as the creatures need to pay attention. We need to be placed on high alert. We need, when we learn, when we discover that God is is declaring something emphatically, what do we need to do? We need to put the phone down and pay attention to God. We need to listen. This is what he says, declaring, to state emphatically And authoritatively, the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Well, what is he declaring? What is the the essence of this authoritative declaration? There's a few things I want you to pay close attention to. One is that God governs the affairs of his creation. God governs all the affairs of his creation. Wayne Grudem says it like this, God has a purpose in all that he does in the world and providentially, by the way, for the kids, providentially counts as providence. He providentially governs or directs all things in order that they may accomplish his purposes. Now, I want to have you hold your finger in Isaiah chapter 46 and turn over a few books to the book of Daniel. Turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 4. And as you make your way to the book of Daniel, I want you to think through the story of Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, here is a man. He's filled with pride. He's filled with arrogance. And he refuses to worship the living God. And it's so classic. What does God do? He sends him out to pasture. And we find this, this portrait of Nebuchadnezzar, a man who essentially loses his mind. His, his, his fingernails grow long, like it's just gross. His, his beard gets long like, like Tom Hanks' character in The Castaway. You remember that movie? It's an amazing movie. God sends him out to pasture, and here's what we read, if you would begin reading with me at verse 34 in Daniel chapter 4. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. You see, he had gone insane. He went nuts. Now he says, my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? We have this pagan king who lost his marbles. Now he delights in the living God. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. I'm greatly anticipating coming to the end of Romans chapter 11. You will recall that Romans is put together in in two main portions, chapter 1 through the end of chapter 11 are the the doctrinal or the theological portion, and then chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 are the practical application. Paul gets to the end of Romans chapter 11, the doctrinal portion. What does he say? He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I have two sermons planned for that one verse. It it is a mighty, mighty passage of Scripture. And so we see that God governs all the affairs of the nations. I also want you to see that God's governing hand is absolutely comprehensive. His governing hand is absolutely comprehensive. Last week I told you that R.C. Sproul said, and I heard him say this personally several times that there are no maverick molecules in God's universe. I remember Dr. Sproul, he used to love to walk the platform and lean over and say things like, if there are any random molecules in the universe, then God is not God. And if God is not God, he is unworthy of our worship. And so remember with me that there are no maverick molecules in the universe. Dr. Sproul went on to say in his book, The Invisible Hand, quote, God is sovereign over His entire creation, including the subordinate domain of Satan. God is Lord of death as well as life. He rules over pain and disease as sovereignly as He rules over prosperity. He says in verse 10 that he declares the end from the beginning. That, my friends, is the definition of comprehensive. From ancient times, things not yet done. That is, he is sovereignly in control of all things, including all those things that have not yet come to pass, including the trivial things like where I will walk tomorrow, like what you will have for lunch tomorrow, like where you will go on vacation next June, like who your daughter marries, like who your son marries, and when you will breathe your last breath. God's in control of it all. He governs the natural world. He governs human history. He governs individuals. Here's the one that I have discovered many, many, many evangelicals don't like. It rubs them the wrong way. I'm going to say it anyway. He governs human decisions. He governs human decisions. John Frame says, We should not be prejudiced by the unbiblical but popular notion that God never foreordains our free decisions, unquote. You see, God governs also the eternal destiny of all people. I can't tell you how many times someone has looked me in the eye and said, you're not one of those guys that believes in predestination, are you? There are some who have said that the doctrine of predestination is an abhorrent doctrine. Well, let me tell you this. If the doctrine of predestination is an abhorrent doctrine, then God is an abhorrent God. And we know that he's not an abhorrent God. He is a a loving, gracious, merciful God who predestines everything, including individuals. John Calvin famously said, quote, predestination we call the eternal decree of God by which he has determined in himself what he would have to become of every individual of mankind. The last great, really theologian at Princeton Theological Seminary, those days are gone, but Benjamin Warfield said In the infinite wisdom of the Lord of all the earth, each event falls within the exact precision in its proper place, in the unfolding of his eternal plan. Nothing, however small, however strange, occurs without his ordering or without its peculiar fitness for its place in the working out of his purposes. And the end of all shall be the manifestation of his glory and the accumulation of his praise. Back to verse 10 in Isaiah 46. My counsel shall stand. That is comprehensive. I will accomplish all my purpose. That, again, is comprehensive. And so the first component we've seen together is the the component of divine government. God governs all things. There's a second component. By the way, for the kids, you can memorize these things. A year from now, I can walk up to you and say, little Johnny, little Susie, can you tell me the three components of providence? I can't wait for that day. The first component, divine government. Here's the second component, divine preservation. Divine preservation. What I mean here is that God not only governs all things, but God also sustains all things. Do you know what would happen if God were not a God who sustained all things? I want to speak, and I'm not a scientist, and I didn't do well in science in school, another confession. It's like confession day, right? But I'll tell you this, if God didn't sustain all things, this pulpit would be gone before your very eyes. Why? The molecules would be random. They'd be crazy, right? God ordains all things. He also sustains all things all the way down to the molecular level, One theologian comments on God's sustaining power. He said that God keeps all created things existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Hold your finger once again in Isaiah 46 and turn back a few books to the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah. And I want you to see in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6, The importance of God sustaining all things. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. I love to hear the pages turning. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host and the earth and all that is in it on the seas and all that is in them. Stop right there. Young people, when your teacher, tells you that the universe evolved, college students, when your professor tells you that the universe evolved, that man evolved from the primordial slime, you don't need to respond arrogantly. You don't need to respond like a wise Weisenheimer. Is that a word? You don't need to respond filled with pride. All you need to do is simply raise your hand and say the word of God says... You are the Lord, you alone, you have made the heaven and the earth. That is, my friends, the definitive last word. But move on in the passage. He not only makes everything, verse 6 says, he, He preserves all of them and the host of heaven worships you. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11 we're told that God tends his flock like a shepherd. Aren't you so glad for that? That we, as the, the sheep of God, God promises to, to tend his flock like a shepherd. It gets better. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we read this, that he, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. You want to know what God is like? Just look at Jesus. That's what God is like. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And listen to what He does. He, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Do you know what that's called? That's called divine preservation divine preservation. There's a third component. The kids got it, right? The three components, divine government, divine preservation. Number three, now this is a big word, two big words smashed together, but it's so important that you remember this. The third component of the framework of providence is divine concurrence. Divine concurrence. Again, R.C. Sproul helps us understand this doctrine. He says, The doctrine of concurrence refers to historical events in which the work of providence has been acted out through human agencies. That means that at the same time human beings are acting, God is acting in and through them. Now, to illustrate the doctrine of concurrence, my family many times has taken the trip down to Astoria. Some of you have been there as well, or many of you have been to Fort Stevens. Something very interesting happens near Fort Stevens. It's called the Clatsop Spit. It'd be a great name for a band. The Clatsop Spit, right? What happens at the kla- Clatsop... It's hard to say. What happens at the Clatsop the Spit? That is where the fresh water from the Columbia River merges with the salt water of the what? The Pacific Ocean. And if you can come explain to me after the message how this works, I have this image in my mind of deep down in the ocean, there's like this secret dam, right? That somehow like... Where, where, you see the tension? Is, is any, shake your head if you see, if it bothers you. Like fresh water, salt with thank you, Tom. You're like, it's weird. But do we believe it? Are you with me? Do we accept it? That is concurrence. The, the fresh water somehow intervening with the salt water at the Clatsop Spit. Right? That's the doctrine of concurrence. A sovereign God, somehow in his infinite wisdom, comes together with, I'm going to say it, the free decisions of the creature, and they somehow come together, and God always gets what he wants. That is the doctrine of concurrence. Now, last week I made reference to the Westminster Confession of Faith, penned in 1647. I believe the Puritans that got together in England took around six years to draft this document. Probably my favorite section in the Westminster Confession of Faith is right here. I want to read it to you. The God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. That's this part. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. That's a mouthful. But what were those Puritan pastors and theologians, what were they Wanting us to see? They were wanting us to see the doctrine of concurrence, that God is a God of providence, that yes, we indeed make free choices, and somehow God in His infinite wisdom always gets His way. Now, here's the big question those of you who are inclined philosophically, and if you're sitting in your seat, I can't say pew anymore, can I? (laughs) Where do the backsliders sit in a church that only has chairs? Talk about philosophy. But here's the question that I want to pose to you that so many people wonder about. Is God sovereign over all things or do creatures make free, uncoerced decisions? I want you to think about that. Because we're on the horns of a dilemma now with this doctrine of concurrence. Does God sovereignly ordain all things or is the creature making free, uncoerced decisions. And here is the answer. The answer is yes. Yes. And where people get in trouble is where they emphasize one to the exclusion of the other. In my experience, most people don't emphasize the sovereignty of God. Most people emphasize, they emphasize the so-called free, uncoerced choice of the creature. But here's what the scripture teaches over and over again the creature is free God is sovereign in Genesis chapter 50 you remember this amazing story of Joseph you remember that where Joseph's brothers they got jealous he had that amazing coat the coat of many colors and they they take Joseph and what did they do they threw him in a in a pit right and they left him for dead And at the end of the story, we move all the way from from that point to Genesis chapter 50, he ends up getting out of the pit, he is the right-hand man, Joseph was the right-hand man, and he's supposed to be dead in the eyes of his brother, and he's serving in Pharaoh's court. And at the end of Genesis, in chapter 50, we find the brother standing before Pharaoh and his right-hand man, Joseph. Have you ever seen a man with a big Adam's apple go boom right? Every single one of those brothers, the Adam's apple was going up and down and up and down, because here's what they're thinking. I'm reading between the lines here in the text. They're standing before Pharaoh and his servant Joseph, and they're thinking, this is the Dave Steele revised translation, right? Oh, stink. <laughs> we're dead. We're dead. And notice what Genesis chapter 50 says, verse 20. As for me, or as for you rather, Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see concurrence there? God The the free, uncoerced decision of the creature, and by the way, when Joseph's brothers made that free, uncoerced decision to throw their bro in the pit, they are culpable. They are guilty. No creature can ever say, well, God made me do it. Even better yet, no creature can ever say, God decreed that I would do it. They do it freely. Freely. Now, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, I want to have you turn there because it would be helpful for you to to set your eyes on this passage. We have what I consider to be probably the most powerful demonstration of concurrence in all of sacred scripture, and it involves the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, we read this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's this side. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's this side. God ordains it. Sinful creatures use their, their volition to do it. And in both these passages, both in Acts 2 and Genesis 50, we see God's sovereign intervention and the free choices of people fulfilling the plans and the purposes of God. Now, as you wrestle with this doctrine, and I'm convinced that some of you will, it would be normal. Remember this maxim. And a maxim is something that you run to the bank with, right? A maxim is something that is worth writing down. A maxim is is something that is worth pinning on your refrigerator or placing on your desk or putting in your Evernote account so you can look at it on your phone. Here's the maxim that I don't ever want you to remember, ever forget. Free acts, free acts are foreordained. Does anyone have an aspirin? Free acts Like the free acts of Joseph's brothers, like the free acts of those men who put Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the cross, free acts are foreordained. You see, we never minimize either reality. The choices that we make are always free and uncoerced. This much is true. But God is sovereign over all things, including your free choices and my free choices. And when you carefully consider these three components of providence that, that all of you have memorized by this point, right? Divine government, divine preservation, divine concurrence, you cannot help, especially in light of what we're walking through as Americans right now, you can't help but be comforted. To know that God is in sovereign control of all things. To know that God is in providential control of all creatures. And to know that he is the God of concurrence. Now there are numerous ways that the doctrine of God's providence comforts us. And I want to turn from the components now to the second feature of the framework of providence by looking at the comfort that we receive from this doctrine. Number one... I want you to see that the doctrine of God's providence is comprehensive. To to believe and understand that God has ordained every event, every detail in the universe. Remember, declaring the end from the beginning for me, and I trust for you, is a great boon to your soul. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing happens by coincidence. And One of the themes of my life for the last really over 30 years, before I was even married I was thinking about this, is I'm on this great rampage to eliminate the word luck from the English language. Let's get rid of the word luck. It's a bad word. It's a horrible word. You read about the the revolutionary days in America, and you read men who were committed to the Christian faith would say things like, "Before someone went onto the battlefield, Godspeed, Godspeed." Do you know that? That's what happened on the battlefield. Before President, before General Washington entered the battlefield, he would have someone come to him and say, "Mr. Washington, Godspeed." I'll guarantee you, no one said good luck. In fact, just just a little insight. I'm admitting too much this morning. When someone comes up to me, especially before a message and says, good luck. I'm like, okay, Lord, discipline, discipline, right? Right? There is no luck in God's economy. God is sovereign over all things. You may remember the old song. He's got the whole world in his hands. I promise not to sing it for you. Isn't that the case? It's true. He's got the whole world in his hands, but you need to understand that he is not only has the whole world in his hands, he has every speck of dust in his hands. It's what theologians refer to as meticulous providence. And I want to go on record and tell you that I, I love the doctrine of meticulous providence. And I hope you love the doctrine of meticulous providence there's a pastor who served at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England. My wife and I had a chance to, to visit there and attend church there when you so graciously, graciously sent us to London. I think it's been three or four years ago now. Charles Haddon Spurgeon made a, a comment in the 19th century that I think better than anyone I've ever read helps to unpack the doctrine of meticulous providence. Some of you have heard me share this quote before. It's one of my favorites. He says this, and this is a quote that separates the men from the boys. This is a quote that separates the theologians from the non-theologians. This is a quote that separates those who fear God with those who refuse to fear God. Listen to what Spurgeon says. He says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chafe from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in the courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of the the leaves from the popular tree is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. Spurgeon says, he that believes in God must believe this truth. There is no standing point between this and atheism. There is no halfway between an almighty God that ordains all things by by his sovereign control of his will and no God at all. A God that cannot do as he pleases, a God whose will is frustrated, is not God and cannot be a God. I cannot believe in a God such as that, close quote. This great reality of the comprehensive providence of God fills our hearts with confidence, even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of a global health crisis, even in the midst of of anarchy being unleashed from Seattle to Portland to LA to Chicago to Baltimore to New York City to Orlando. Even in the midst of unrest in our government, God is comprehensively in control of all things. There's a second comfort. The doctrine of God's providence is unshakable, unwavering, and unassailable. Simply put, God is a God of power who is simply unmatched in the cosmos. All things fall under the massive banner of of God's providence. It makes me wonder why we have neglected this doctrine over the last 20 or 30 years in the church. Number three, the third comfort is that the doctrine of God's providence is certain. Now, if you are a fan of postmodern ideology, if you're a fan of, of philosophy in general that sees things from a worldly point of view, to, to hear A man standing at a pulpit saying that anything is certain will be deeply offensive to you. But in a world that is plagued with uncertainty, I need to say this, you can always rely on the providence of God, 100% of the time. Seasons change, the stock market changes and fluctuates, relationships change, communities change, and communities even burn down, as we've seen in Oregon. Everything is in flux. But God's plans always remain constant. Number four, a fourth comfort of God's providence is that it is personal. This is a personal doctrine. I read a book, oh, probably 30 years ago at least, a book by one of the Puritans by the name of John Flavelle. Called the mystery of providence. I commend it to you. It's a little paperback. And here's what Flavel says. Speaking of God, He is ever doing you good. Be you always abounding in His work. His providence stands by you in your greatest distresses and dangers. Do not then flinch from God when His service and your duty is compassed about with difficulties. Oh, be active so that God, who every moment is active for you. Finally, another comfort is that providence always has an ultimate goal. It always has an ultimate aim. That is, that God is working all things after the counsel of his will. We all know Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that he's working all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But let us never forget Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, that says, In him. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Amen and amen. And so as we wrestle with all that is swirling around us in this culture, COVID-19 and all the other things that we're concerned with, I want you to be challenged and to be comforted with the doctrine of God's providence. I want you to remember, and I want to have you leave this morning with several very important realities. Number one, and we'll close with these points, remember that God will build His church. God will build His church. I I pulled out a book that I was forced to read in seminary. It's called The Death of the Church. The Death of the Church. Let me say boldly and emphatically, the church will never die. Listen, my friends, the government can shut us down. The government can lock us in. The government can can send us out into the fields, but we will never be shut down. God will build his church. Number two, God's plan will succeed. We saw that in Ephesians 1.11 that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. You see, there's no ambiguity with God. There's lots of ambiguity with me. There's a load of ambiguity with you, right? There's no ambiguity with God. God's plan always succeeds. Number three, God's ways are mysterious and unfathomable. My dear friend, uh, Doug Holt, he and I have kind of an inside, I want to say joke, it's not a joke, but kind of an inside story that we share, and we even shared it this morning, once again. Whenever Doug and I get talking about the crazy stuff happening wherever and whenever, and it's usually Doug that says it, and I, I so appreciate it, Doug. Doug just leans over to me and he says, Deuteronomy 29, 29. And if you don't know what that verse is, you're not on the inside story, so I want to get you on the inside circle here. Deuteronomy 29 29 simply says the secret things belong to the Lord (laughs) God is in control we're not interested in looking at the crystal ball by the way you do know that to to gaze into the future to to seek the counsel in the stars to look at your horoscope to to try to find the future via a a horoscope or a crystal ball or a necromancer or any any other pagan kind of activity is express expressly forbid Forbidden in Scripture. Why? Because the secret things belong to the Lord. What does that verse teach us? The future is none of our business. Can I say that again? The future is none of our business because God has all things in the palm of his hands. He has ordained ordained everything that comes to pass. Number four, God's ways are higher than our ways. So says Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. And even in the midst of the global health crisis, even in the midst of the smoky skies, even in the midst of the the turmoil that we find around us, we know this, God's will is perfect. Again, John Flavel, the Puritan writer, says, study the singular benefits and advantages of a will resigned up and melted into the will of God. I hope that's you this morning that your will will be melted into the will of God. Number five, God's plans for his people are always good. The plans that he has for his people are always good. Number six, nothing takes God by surprise. Indeed, COVID-19 is a part of God's eternal redemptive plan. I've said it before, the COVID-19 crisis is a, is a radar blip on the screen of redemptive history. We're going to look back at this in the days to come and see, ah, now we see it's a radar blip on God's redemptive historical plan. And 20 years from now, should the Lord tarry, we'll be going through something else. And that too will be a radar blip on the screen of redemptive history. Finally, and we'll close, may I encourage you to trust God With your life. My great model for preaching and ministry, at least my great human model, is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon will never end a message without taking people to the cross. And while this message in Isaiah chapter 46 is not focused exclusively on the cross, we see as we as we open the curtain, we see that behind the curtain there is indeed a cross. We've learned about the framework of providence, but as we open up that curtain, we see that a, a critical aspect of God's providential designs involve the crosswork of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and lived a life that we could never lived, and He died a death that, that I deserve to die and that you deserve to die. And He died on a wooden cross for the sins of every person who would ever believe. He died upon a wooden cross for the sins of every person who would ever believe. And so the the challenge today is, have you trusted him? I'm not asking if you're a member of the church. I'm not asking you if you've gone to church. I'm not asking you if you've made a commitment to the church. I'm not asking you if you're religious. I'm asking you, have you trusted the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to the foot of the cross and said, God, I am a rebel I have despised your holy law. I have despised the doctrine of providence, but today I see, I have no choice but to believe. And I want you to remember this as we close, that God is inviting you to believe in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but He's doing more than inviting you to believe. He is commanding you to believe. It doesn't matter if you grew up as a Muslim, or a Jehovah's Witness, or a Mormon or a run-of-the-mill pagan, and that's what we find most of all in Whatcom County. Not Muslims, not Mormons, not Jehovah's Witnesses, but Whatcom County, 225,000 people, is filled to the brim with people who hate God, with pagans. And so may I cry out to all of my friends who consider themselves to be a pagan, have you trusted Christ? Have you come to the foot of the cross and said, I am a rebel and I need a savior. Thank you for saving me. And the word of God says that you will be forgiven, you will be free. All your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, as you trust the God of providence. Let's pray. So Father, thank you for reassuring us that you are in control. I know that I need it. I need to be reminded of this great reality. Lord, I need to be reassured of this great reality. It is a great boon to my soul to remember about your providential control over all things. God, we began the the service this morning, the sermon rather, with a challenge for children. And I pray that that children in our congregation would remember this doctrine for the rest of their lives, that they would do more than merely remember that I said it X amount of times, but they would remember the essence of the doctrine of providence. that You're in control of all things, that there are no maverick molecules in your universe, that we can trust you with our lives, even in the midst of all that we're enduring. Health crisis, cultural crisis, political crisis. Some have received scary diagnoses from their physicians. Others may have marriages that are on the rocks. Parents may be at war with their their children. Whatever the case is, God, thank you for reminding us that you are in providential control of every speck of dust in the cosmos. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand as we close with our final two songs.